On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I could not be better today, Tim. How are you? I'm doing well. Lance, this episode is really interesting and really special because we speak to a new friend. We really make a new friend, someone who we've been familiar with for a while. She's a colleague. Her name is Daphne. She co-hosts the Going West podcast with her boyfriend, Heath. And it's a great show. It's true crime related. And we recently found out that she has a real-life missing aunt. That's correct. Daphne's aunt is Carol Lee Wilsoncroft, and Daphne's last name is Wilsoncroft as well. And her aunt went missing from Fort Myers, Florida on August 4th, 1984. She was born on July 12th, 1964, so she would be 56 today. She was 20 when she went missing, and the information that Daphne has is passed down to her mostly from her grandparents and, and her family. You'll hear her describe how she how she went about getting that information and how fortunate she is in this position in the true crime community as a podcaster talking about missing persons to have this platform to get her aunt's name out there to raise the awareness for uh, Carol. That's right. And she's talking about doing more on the case. So definitely check out Going West and follow Daphne on Twitter. There are links in the show notes. And the investigating agency for her aunt's disappearance is the Lee County Sheriff's Office at 239-477-1000. And you can get information on her case at charlieproject.org. And you can search Carol Lee, that's L-E-I-G-H, Wilsoncroft. And let's make sure to retweet this. Let's spread this far and wide. You know, we really want to help everyone we can in our true crime family. And Tim, as you know, we do the Get Vocal True Crime Thursday every Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can watch this on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook. But where can you interact the best? Well, the best way to interact is on Get Vocal itself. And there is a link in the show notes. And there's a great chat room and really a whole community of like-minded fans who enjoy true crime and really chat about the cases that we're talking about while we're recording and doing our thing on the show. But there's also a separate conversation that goes on. And I think people really enjoy that social experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it is also a way for people to raise the awareness of cases that they're working on. For example, Jason Watts is typically in our chat room, and he's talking about any updates with Brandon Lawson. Sometimes he'll pop on and talk about that and any other case that he's involved with. And Tim, we have a really, really special guest this Thursday. We have Molly Bish's sister, Heather Bish, on. She's going to be joining us. Most people know that Molly Bish was 16 years old uh, when she went missing in 2000. She was from Warren, Massachusetts. She was taken from her lifeguard post, and her body was found in 2003. So she was missing for about three years. They finally found her body, and the case is still unsolved, but Heather has championed the cause for Molly and also for other cold cases and justice for people who don't have that right now. Yeah, and we did an interview with Heather back in May of 2020, so you want to listen to that one. And definitely check us out on Get Vocal with Heather, 9 p.m. Eastern. And again, there is a link in the show notes. And I would think we'll use that audio on Crawl Space uh, in the future, so that will be coming to podcast form as well. And Lance, on this date, July 23rd, 1992, 14-year-old Wilma May Benoit disappeared from her family's home in Creole, Louisiana. Wilda had been released from the hospital after she had been treated for a shoulder injury. She was under sedation or had prescription painkillers for her injury when she vanished. Wilda was five foot tall, 100 pounds, with brown hair and blue eyes and pierced ears. She was also featured in the original music video Runaway Train by the band Soul Asylum, which was released in 1992. Anyone with information should contact the Cameron Parish Sheriff's Office at 337-775-5111. And anyone who wants further information on this, check out charlieproject.org. And her case is Wilda, W-I-L-D-A-M-A-E-B-E-N-O-I-T. And this segment is brought to us by our good friends at Private Investigations for the Missing. Make sure to follow them on social and check out their blog on the website. There are links in the show notes. And swing on by, get vocal tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard, and check out our show there with Heather Bish. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview with Daphne from Going West. Welcome to the podcast, Daphne of Going West. How's it going, Daphne? Amazing. How are you, Tim? It's going great. Thank you guys so much for having me. By the way, this is really fun. It's been so long. We've been emailing for at least 25 years on, you know, when you can come on the show. You had significant mouth surgery, which prevented it. You moved. And finally, and even today, for 15 minutes, we were technically trying to figure out how to do this. But finally, you made it. And we appreciate it. I really appreciate you guys. I'm so sorry for that delay. It's just been a crazy couple months. We decided to move to Oregon so suddenly from Los Angeles. So, It has been a whirlwind, but I'm happy to be here. Did you go west in that venture at all, or was it a little little east in that case? I think it was a little east. (laughs) So your your podcast that you do with Heath is is excellent, and why did you name it Going West? 
So Heath and I, the night that we decided that we were going to start a podcast, we were just Googling like synonyms of dying and stuff like that. And we found go west, which means to die or disappear. And we wanted something that was kind of different that didn't just say true crime or something that was super obvious. Like we wanted something that was a little bit more unique. And so like crawl space, you know, something that was a little different. So we're like, what if we just did going west? Because go west was just didn't didn't feel right. So we picked going west. But a lot of people originally thought that we only covered cases on the west coast. So, and I know that go west isn't a general term that we all know what it means. So it's <laughs> I don't know. We just we just went with it. Well, it it has a great ring to it, and uh, I think I listen because I want to see how far west you're going to go. <laughs> and I'm and I'm I'm curious if you think that there might come a day where you go so far west then you're going east again you know it happens but we you know in each case we you know we cover both missing persons and disappearance cases or sorry missing persons and murder cases both unsolved and solved and so unfortunately they all do go west by the end and why did you decide to uh to take take this take this on? So I've always been interested in true crime and I've always been like a mystery novel lover and a horror lover. And so for years I wanted to have a true crime podcast and none of my friends were into it. Like not a single one of my friends liked true crime. And then two and a half years ago, I came to Oregon to visit my dad, and that's when I met Heath. And we've been dating for two and a half years now, and about a year and a half ago. I finally convinced him to start a podcast with me. But I my main interest in true crime came from my mom's sister disappearing in the early 80s. So I was always really interested in her case. And then just from an early age, probably like my early teens, got really into true crime. Okay. And you mentioned your aunt, Carol Lee. Sorry if I'm pronouncing it. No, I'll tell you. It's Wolsoncroft. It's, it's exactly how it looks. Wolsoncroft, Carol Lee Wolsoncroft, and she has been missing since August 4th of 1984. And I mean, you weren't even born when she went missing, correct? No, I was born about 10 years later. So my mom was almost 22 when Carol, who was newly 20, disappeared. So my mom was pretty young herself. Yeah, she had just turned 20, right? She had just turned 20 the month before. Exactly. Oh, you've done your research. Yes, exactly. So she um, and she was still or she had just moved out um, when she disappeared. And, you know, we can go into the whole story if you guys want. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I guess first, though, I'm, I'm curious how it how this, uh, you know, the disappearance of your aunt uh, affected your family, like the like the inner workings and, and such. Yeah. So um, Carol was my mom's only sibling. So you know, that was really hard on her. And my mom, uh, about two or three years prior to Carol's disappearance, had moved to Los Angeles, where I was born and raised. And so she wasn't there when it happened, but she was obviously very aware of what was going on. And my mom and my grandma are seriously two of the most positive people. And they've been through so much tragedy there. Um, so my mom's dad, my grandpa, passed away. Um, I think it was almost nine years ago now. And he was really, really like tortured by Carol's disappearance his whole life. And he ended his own life in, in the end of that. And 
So that really affected him. And then my grandma ended up moving to California to kind of start new and be closer to family since she was living in Florida. And so it really tortured my grandpa. And my grandma has just somehow remained so positive through all of her trauma and all the tragedy that she's endured. And I don't know how she does it. Her and my mom are just so, so positive. So I always felt really guilty bringing up the disappearance, but I was always so curious and I just always felt really bad because I thought they would, you know, would hurt their feelings or kind of rehash old emotions. And they've always been really, really nice about talking to me about it, but they've been through a lot. Yeah, it sounds like they've been through a lot. The You said that was your grandfather that took his own life? Yeah, so that was in 2011. And he was having some other issues, I know, but that was, I know that that you know, Carol's disappearance was really, really hard on him. And so, um, yeah, that was a big factor in it. So I've been told. Wow. that That's going to be kind of a, a nerve wracking thing for you when you want to start a podcast and then you'd have to tell, I mean, you, you basically said it, you were afraid of offending them in some way because you don't want to make it seem like you're making entertainment out of this. Exactly. And so originally when I was 21, so I'm almost 26 now, Originally, I was uh, I was about 21 when I started really talking to them about it, uh, my mom and my grandma. And I started off with my mom, and I just kind of was like, hey, so I know it's a tough subject, but would you mind kind of telling me about what happened to Carol? And she was just kind of like, you know, I don't remember that much about it, and I've tried to block a lot of it out. I remember there was something like this happened and this, and it's just kind of little off the cuff details that who knows if they're really true or or if her memory is serving her right since she wasn't there. So she was like, you should really talk to grandma about it. But I always felt really bad talking to my grandma because, you know, it's her daughter. So I, I remember when I was 21, you know, it was like, I think it was right after Making a Murderer came out. And I was like, I want to do a documentary on Carol's case because it's it's unsolved. Her body has never been found. So I really wanted to bring light. Um, and while I was doing research, I read this newspaper clipping from the 80s. And my grandma, she said this quote, it was something like how devastated she would be if she never learned what happened to Carol. And that really struck me. I was like, I just want to know what happened. Because when we go into the details, you'll see it's like all the answers are right there, but it's still unsolved. And so anyway, so I emailed my grandma this whole thing because I was too scared to say it in person. And I emailed her this whole thing, basically saying, hey, would you mind talking to me about it? You know, I would love to try to figure out what happened, which sounds so silly, I know. But you know, would you mind telling me the whole story from what you remember? And she sent me this email back and she's so sweet. She's seriously the nicest, most amazing lady. And our relationship really grew after she moved to California. But she was like, I just don't know if I feel comfortable talking about it. And so I was like, okay, I kind of let it go. And then a few days later, she emailed me and she said, ever since you emailed me, I haven't been able to stop thinking about Carol and what happened. So I want you to come over and we can sit down and I'll tell you all about it. And I still felt bad because I was like, oh my God, she hasn't stopped thinking about it. But I was like, if I just go over there and we talk about it, I never have to bring it up to her again. And I did mention 
that I wanted to do a documentary on it. And she was like, that's totally fine as long as you get someone to play me because I don't want to act. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's fine, which isn't how it works anyway. But so we basically sat on her porch one night and for about an hour, she just told me everything that she remembers about what happened. And of course, this was 36 years ago, but she still remembers a lot of what happened. So a lot of what I know is from that conversation with her and from what I've seen online and from the detectives who I have been on and off in contact with since about five years ago. Wow. And what a really cool position to be in. What a very fortunate position to be in for yourself, to have somebody who's so close to this cold case. It's her daughter. It's got to be very painful uh, for her. So you're able to be there as a family member that she trusts to go through the details, go through that pain. And that's really unique for both of you, for her and for you. And you have a platform now for it. Exactly. And she knows she knows about going west, of course. And she knows that I haven't talked about Carol because we haven't talked about it at all. I've brought it up on the show before, but I've never actually gone over the details in an episode because I I kind of want to do something else with it. But yeah, she's she I was really grateful that she sat down with me and told me everything. And she has all the original news clippings and photographs of Carol and her boyfriend at the time who is the suspect in this case. And, you know, she just, she really just went over all the details and I was really proud of her to be able to do that. But again, she's so positive throughout the whole story. She wasn't crying. She wasn't like, she doesn't play the victim. She, she talks about it in a positive way um, because, you know, Carol was her daughter and she wants to remember her in a good way and not a bad way. Yeah, well, she was so young, my gosh. So yeah, please uh, take us through some of the uh, the details here of, of uh, your aunt's disappearance. Yeah, so I can tell you also a little bit, uh, when it first, when the case was first, you know, when, when she disappeared, it was in the summer of 1984. And as we know, she had just turned 20 years old. And it was kind of at the point where she was still living at home. And when you're around that age, your parents are kind of like, okay. So what are your plans? What are you doing? And my grandpa, which is a big reason I think why he felt so much guilt is because he was kind of the one to instigate that. He said, you know, you're almost 20. It's kind of time you get a job and and move out and do your own thing. And because she did that is why she disappeared. So I think just in that sense alone, he feels a lot of guilt. You know, if I never told her to move out, this wouldn't happen. So she got a job as a waitress at Raffles Bar and Grill in the Edison Mall in Fort Myers, Florida, which is where my grandparents were living at the time and where she was then living at the time. And so she was a waitress and she met this guy named Eugene LaFay. And he worked as a cook. He was about 24 years old, so a few years older than her. And they really hit it off and they started dating. And within a couple months of dating, they moved in together. And they got a house with another couple, I believe, in Cape Coral, which is like a coastal town right next to Fort Myers. So they were living in this, I think it was a two-bedroom house, one couple and then them. And, you know, right after they moved in, my grandparents went on vacation. They went to Colorado and they took their RV and they went with a bunch of their friends and up to Colorado and they got a call from Carol and she was kind of like, you know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable because Eugene 
uh, I just found out is a drug dealer and he's been bringing really seedy people over to the house to sell them drugs. And it's making me really nervous and I don't know what to do. But at that point, my grandparents were like, okay, you know, it's okay. We'll be home in a couple weeks and just go. If you don't feel comfortable in the house, go to our house, go to grandma's house. Because my grandma's mom was also living in the area at the time. And Carol was just kind of like, I don't want to do that because he'll know where I am and he'll find me. And so they said, okay, well, just, you know, hang tight. We'll be there soon kind of thing. They didn't really take it seriously, which is something that my grandma told me, which she feels really bad about now because she didn't know how serious it was. So a few days later, they got a letter in the mail from Carol and it kind of said, you know, I'm afraid for my life. Eugene has been hitting me and I want to leave and I don't know how to leave. And then they were kind of like, okay, now they took it a little more seriously. So they said, okay, they wrote her letter back. Okay, we'll come home in a few days. You know, stay put. You'll be fine. Again, go to our house, go to grandma's house. We'll be there soon kind of thing. And they actually don't think that um, either she received this letter and so did Eugene or Eugene just got his hands on that letter and knew what was going on that they knew what they knew and that they were coming home to help her. When they got back to Fort Myers, which was on August 7th, they went to their house and Carol's car was in their driveway. So they were like, oh, great. Carol's here. She's fine. But they went inside and she wasn't there. And in the kitchen was a note from Eugene and it said, I can't find Carol. Come over. So they were like, okay, she probably did what we said and went to grandma's or went to a friend's. You know, but it was weird because her car was in the driveway and her keys were in the ignition. So they weren't too freaked out yet. And they went over and they kind of started looking around the house, looking through uh, Carol's bedroom. And they noticed that a bunch of her clothes were gone, but her jewelry wasn't gone. And she was such a girly girl. Um, Carol was, you know, she had a lot of friends. She had a lot of parties at the house. And my grandparents were always cool with it because all of Carol's friends were cool with my grandparents and they all hung out together and Carol was super social. She was like super girly, just beautiful, like blonde, gorgeous young woman. And so they they were like, oh, that's weird that her jewelry's here. So then they saw a gun on the dresser and my grandpa was like, my grandpa's name is Ed and my grandma's name is Anne, by the way. So Ed was like, why do you have a gun? And Eugene was like, oh, I use it for protection. So they're like, okay. They call friends. They call grandma. No one knows where Carol is. And so then they go to the police to file a missing persons report. And this was on August 7th. And she had apparently last been seen on the 4th. So it's been three days now. They go to the police station to file a missing persons report. And they just kind of say, you know, everything that they know about the letter, about the call, and about the fact that Eugene had a gun. And the officer was like, what do you mean he had a gun? And like, he's on probation. They're like, probation? You know, to them, Eugene was, from what they knew before everything that happened with Carol, um, he was this handsome, super charming, like very outgoing guy when they met him. They really liked him. And they thought he was great for Carol because he just was awesome, you know? And now suddenly he's on probation. They're like, they didn't know anything about him being a criminal of any kind. So the officer was like, he was in prison for three years for raping a 15-year-old. And they were like, what? And 
you know, so he's on probation. And, you know, if Carol knew that that he had raped a 15 year old, they were like, she would have never been with him. So now like the onion is unpeeling and they're seeing who Eugene really is. And so now they were really worried because they're like, okay, she's, you know, they're putting all the puzzle pieces together. And so Eugene was questioned originally. And he basically said, you know, I last saw her on Saturday, August 4th. And she was about to get into the shower. It was about noon. And I went to go visit some relatives. The police checked this alibi out and it didn't check out. Like none of his relatives said that he visited them. Like this, it was a lie. The, and the last time that Carol was seen in public was the night before, which was Friday, August 3rd. And they were arguing at work. And Carol told a friend that day that she was going to break up with Eugene and move out. And so, you know, now they're like, oh, my God, she was going to break up with him. And now she goes missing. So the only other report of seeing her was on the day that she went missing. And she had a rust-colored Chevy hatchback. So it was, like, pretty noticeable, you know, rust-colored And a witness came forward and said that they saw her and who they thought was Eugene. And they said the guy had a darker complexion because his family was from Puerto Rico. So that matched. That made sense. And the woman said that they were at a stoplight and Carol was really upset and just was telling him to take her to work. And so that was another thing in her disappearances. She missed her shifts at work. She didn't pick up her most recent paycheck. Um, her bank account was never touched. And actually my mom told me that years later, my grandparents gave her that money because they didn't know what to do with it. And my mom felt really like weird about that. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Okay. Here's a really weird thing. So police went to talk to all of Eugene's relatives of course, to check out his alibi, but they also talked to his dad. And his dad was like really standoffish and really nervous acting. And they were like, if you know something, tell us and you're not going to get in trouble. You're not in danger. Just tell us what you know. He told them that on August 4th, Eugene came over really angry, like in a rage and went to the backyard, grabbed his dad's shovel, borrowed his dad's car put a large item in the trunk of the car and then put 14 miles on the car. And I don't know if he like kept track of his odometer or how he know that 14 miles was put on the car, but that's what he said. And then he came back and he burned the shovel in the backyard, which is like, that sounds normal, right? People do that all the time. You know, that was like a really weird detail to me. And Um, Like I said earlier, my mom kind of knows little bits and pieces, but I don't know how much of what she knows is true. But something really weird that she did tell me a few years ago when we were talking about it was that they found, they ended up finding the shovel with blood and hair on it. And I don't know if that's true, but I don't know why she would think that if it wasn't true. But I feel like if there was blood and hair on it, they would have been able to convict him. But I I don't know where she got that, but there's a little possible. Yeah, I mean, if that's true, that, that should have been tested for DNA. But God knows that doesn't mean that it was. Exactly. So I know that the police at this point were like, 
all the breadcrumbs lead to Eugene LaFay. There's no other direction that this points in. Her car is not even gone. And what I think is really weird is that um, her car was in my grandparents' driveway, and then Eugene had left a note there, which means that he had gone there, and then there's her car. So he could have easily driven her car there, left that note, and then just walked off or taken a cab or something. Did the police go into the backyard and look for the burned shovel or anything? I don't know. So the, a huge problem with this case for me is that there's I have so many questions, and there's so many things that, you know, I asked that to my grandma. There was like everything she said, I had like three questions for her. And the problem is that it's still an open case. So I can't active or I can't, I don't have access to any of the uh, files. And I've talked to the now retired detectives that were on the case at the time. And, you know, we've kind of talked about little details, but I'm not like, hey, give me a whole write up of the case, you know, because I'm sure there's way more and things that they don't even remember themselves. But Two of the detectives that I talked to, again, who are now retired, told me that this is the only case that they ever worked on that still haunts them. And but so I did reach out to the Fort Myers Sheriff's Office. And the only thing they were able to give me was the missing persons report, which is how I knew that she was reported missing on the 7th. But they can't give me anything else. So because it's an open investigation, even though I mean... What are you doing to help close the case, you know? Right. I feel like they should be pretty open to your assistance on this, but also it's typical law enforcement just keeping the door shut. Exactly. And another another thing that's frustrating is, so Eugene, I mean, there's even more that incriminates him. So in 2005, he was, he murdered his girlfriend and he, I think he... I think he beat her to death. And then a year later, his girlfriend at that time was murdered, beaten to death with a hammer. And so was her nine-year-old child. And these people were all connected to Eugene. And another weird thing is that so seven months after Carol went missing, he fled to New York to be with his sister, where they would rob cab drivers and they like stabbed a couple cab drivers to get money from them. And so obviously this guy is like, a criminal. And, but the whole thing about him murdering other girlfriends and he was convicted for it and sent to prison for life. And he died in prison in 2016. And I think he was in his late fifties or, or sixties. Frustrating. I know because, you know, I don't think he would have said anything about Carol anyway, because one of, so during the time in, in 1984, one of the deputies, or sorry, one of the officers at the time at the Fort Myers Sheriff's Office, um, I forget his name, but he was really interested in this case as it was unfolding and as they were working on it. And then he eventually became a detective. And so when he was about to retire in 2012, he called my mom and my grandma and said, so I'm about, I'm about to retire and I want to go talk to Eugene in prison. I'm going to go see if I can get any information. And they were like, okay, you know, let us know. And basically, Eugene like spit at him and said a bunch of other vulgar stuff and then didn't give him any information. And he was already in prison for life. And I don't know if he had offered to try to reduce his sentence or anything like that. 
But he basically was like, just tell me, you know, you have nothing to lose. Just tell me where Carol is. And he didn't. What did he die of in prison? I don't know. So Michelle, our friend Michelle, she was the one who was able to confirm for me that he did die in 2016 because I read that on the Charlie Project. And I was really surprised to learn that. And I remember telling my mom and my mom had two feelings. She was like, thank God he's off this earth. But then also now we may never know what happened. And so and that's how I feel about it, because if he's still alive, there's still a chance for him to say something. And now he's dead. So I don't but I don't know how he died because he was, you know, in his 60s. He wasn't that old. But I wasn't able to find I even called the the prison like a couple years ago when I had first read that he had died and they were like, oh, that's not public information. So I let it go. When that detective interviewed him, did he specifically say that he did not do anything um, to your aunt? Did he say I was not responsible for it or he just threw some vulgarities and spit and, and didn't quite, you know, deny it? As far as I know, he didn't say anything. The only thing that I remember, I have like this memory of two things that he said. Do you guys cuss on your podcast? Sure. (laughs) Fuck it. Why not? Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. So he basically, what I remember is that he spit and said, fuck you. And then another thing that I remember is, is that he said something about how they'll never find out. And so those are the only two things that I remember. And he, he never denied it. I know that for sure. And maybe he denied it in the beginning, but again, his alibi was BS. So we know he was lying about the last time that he saw her. And then he did all that sketchy shit at his dad's house. So it's like, you're guilty. It's just, it's true. It sounds like a monster walking the streets and uh, raping 15-year-old girls and beating other women to death and... Yeah, robbing. I mean, his whole family sounds like a mess. Have you ever reached out to his family? Okay, so I've tried and I've looked them up and I I don't know. I know he had a brother. I know he had a sister and his dad died, I think, a while ago, maybe definitely not too recently. His dad was much older than him. And so, but I don't know his sister's name or his brother's name. And I have looked and I have investigated and I cannot figure it out. And so my goal is to try to reach out to them. But as far as I know, they're also criminals, or at least the sister is, because I know that she would rob cab drivers with Eugene. So I don't know if she would say anything. I mean, her her brother's dead. So, But again, if, if she knows and she kind of says, hey, here's what I know, she could technically get in trouble too. So I don't know what her motive would be, because she doesn't sound like a very good person anyway unless she was in jail right now if she was incarcerated right now and you were able to interview her maybe you could get a lawyer to offer a reduced sentence for whatever she's in prison for if she gave some information that's very true so if i could only find her name i i would try to do that but i just i don't know how maybe you guys can help we can all work together oh man yeah absolutely so he wasn't very cooperative with authorities either, Eugene. No, not at all. They questioned him one time, and he all he said was, this was the last time I saw her, that's the way it is. But because they never found her body, they couldn't convict him. And all the detectives that I talked to were like, I know Eugene did it, I just can't prove it. So, you know, with without her body, because we can't technically prove that she's even dead, which she is. So... 
that's the whole issue is that they all felt so confident because of all these pieces to the puzzle. It's like, who else could it be? And they just couldn't convict him. So he didn't have to put up with it. You know, they interviewed him once and he didn't have to talk to them because they weren't charging him with anything. They couldn't hold him. So he had no motivation to talk to them at all. And he was very, very uncooperative. So was there any like uh, searches or cadaver dog searches in that? um, I guess it would end up being like a, well, it'd be a 14 mile radius, I guess. But I guess it wouldn't if he was probably seven. Yeah, probably seven at the most seven. Right. Because he could have driven two miles and then drove around for a little bit and and drove back. But yeah, what's going on with that? That's a thank you for bringing that up because I totally forgot about that aspect. I think it's Lehigh Heights, I think, is where his dad lived, which as far as the research I've done is not a very good area. It's a rough area and it's also very swampy. You know, this is Florida. So there's a lot of like swamp land around that area. And that was the whole issue is that they did do a big search. They had cadaver dogs, but and they, I think they did listen to that 14-mile uh, situation and look within at least seven miles. But with all that swampland, it was really, really, really difficult to navigate. And also, she could be in the bottom of a swamp, you know. So that, w- that was made it really, really hard in the search. But what was really interesting, too, is they had like some psychics came together. I don't know. I know some of us believe in them, some of us don't, but they had some psychics come together and they tried to find Carol specifically. And they basically came up with this location of where they thought her body would be and they found, the police found a dead baby in a trash can. Isn't that weird? Yes. Yeah. Like. Oh my gosh. I don't know what that means, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know how they were able to come up with that location, but they were trying to find Carol and they found a dead baby. So I don't know what that means. Now, Carol and Eugene were seen arguing before she went missing. Yeah. So the day that she disappeared, they think she disappeared because so the night before, which was Friday, August 3rd, they were at work and they were arguing. And that's when she was telling her friend, I'm going to break up with him. I'm going to move out. Like, I'm not dealing with this anymore. Because he was, you know, he was abusive and he was a drug dealer and she was just like, no, I'm not going to date this guy anymore. And so I think that she was trying to get out of the relationship and threatened to leave and he got really mad and he killed her. But the last time that they were seen in public was the night before at the restaurant. And then that day at 4.15 p.m. is when this woman said she saw what she thought to be Eugene and Carol in a rust-colored car next to them in a stoplight arguing. And she was saying, just please take me to work. And that was the last time that she was seen. Okay, so she was, she didn't go to work that day. No, she missed work, and she missed work every day after that. Wow. So, okay, well, that could be some clue as to her location then. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I know that it is, uh, it was under like a bridge or near a bridge, and so police knew the location of where that supposedly happened. But, and I, I wanted to reach out to the owners of the restaurant a few years ago to see what they thought and if they had any insider information about Eugene and Carol. But their restaurant closed a long time ago and I could not find their contact information. So that would be interesting to know though. 
if they're still alive. Really interesting about the shovel, and he burned it. So entertain me on this for, for a couple of minutes. Why would he burn the shovel? He would burn the shovel because there's something on it. There's something that there's he's evidence trying to destroy. On it. Right. So I don't think she's. I don't think he put her in a swamp because I don't think you'd need a shovel in a swamp. So unless you wanted to just like push something down. So he definitely buried her. He definitely used the shovel unless he used it to hit her with. But it sounds like he probably shot her or or strangled her. That's actually yeah. That's so. I was thinking about that too because at first I was thinking if he did shoot her. Why would he just have the gun out there on the dresser, out in the open, when he invited my grandparents over to his house? Like, why would he just have that chill in there? And I don't know what kind of gun it was, but it was very obvious and obvious enough for my grandpa to be like, what is this? And so that's my only thing about the shooting scenario is why would he have his gun where my grandparents could see it? Intimidation, maybe? Maybe. that that's a That's a good idea. But... I, I I actually agree with you about the shovel because just like I said, my mom saying that there was blood and hair on it. I don't know if that was true. If it is true, then that would kind of lead me to believe that he hit her in the head with it. But if that's not true, I mean, the whole burying her scenario makes a lot more sense. But I don't know. Like, I just I where is she? Yeah, this is a uh, it's frustrating because he's no he's no longer with us, and he probably has family members who are dying off. But you can't seem to find his family members. They're pro- if the if they are alive, they're probably off the grid somewhere. Have you ever uh, considered doing your own personal search? Have you ever done that? So I've been wanting to go to Florida and do all of this. And so with going west, it actually just became me and Heath's full time job, like last month. So. We, you know, we were always working full-time jobs and having the podcast. And I actually was going to go to Florida about five years ago with my twin sister because me and her were really interested in this. And our friend Jason, who was going to help us like film it, we were going to do this really like amateur documentary situation and go. And then just with work, we were never able to fly over there and... But now I really want to do it. Obviously, we're in a pandemic, so not the best time. But I definitely do. Like, I plan to go over there and just try to figure something out. I mean, I don't know what I could do other than, like, miraculously find her remains. But, like, I don't know how I could help, you know, since he's dead. Unless I talk to the family and if they were willing to kind of say something but again I don't know why they would but I wish they would because I'm sure they know like I'm sure they know yeah I mean that that would help obviously I think um talking to the old investigators would help um but just seeing the places like uh the restaurant she worked at where she lived and this uh river bridge Kala Kalusatachee river bridge yeah it's a really big waterway i guess so yeah i mean i to your point lance about the shovel um yeah it, she's probably not in that water right there she, you know if there was a shovel used yeah i mean unless he's super smart and he wants to throw people off but it doesn't sound to me like he's very smart it just sounds like he's very vicious yeah and that was the thing too is he you know he tried to he obviously tried to hide any evidence from the shovel and that's why his dad was so scared, I think, is because Eugene probably threatened him. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm kind of remembering now. I think his dad, I think he did threaten his dad. And that's why he was so scared. Uh, that's what my grandma told me. 
And so, you know, obviously he didn't want anyone to know that he used a shovel and was there at all because that's incriminating, you know, and if if they knew that and then they found her body buried somewhere, they could put the two and two together. So he doesn't want anyone to know that he he used a shovel. About how long was he gone for? I have no idea. That's something I would love to know, too. And I wish I could look through all the files, but I can't. So right. probably not that long, um, but I don't know. That He came back that night, that same night. So it, it probably wasn't that much later, but I, I have no idea. Yeah, if there's a way to find that out, that would be interesting because then you can almost determine how deep he would have buried her. Because if he's only going about seven miles max figure out how long that takes to just simply drive seven miles in a certain direction and then i mean i've never dug a grave before but that takes some time that takes some time and effort you got to put it in then you you know fill the grave back up and then you got to drive back so if he was gone for like two hours i would say that she's probably in a shallow grave right that's a good point if he was gone for 10 hours then it might be a little bit more difficult to to find uh, a grave that would be deeper than something you could dig for like an hour Right. That's actually a really good point. And I, I'm sure I'm sure his dad had a lot more information. His dad, I think, is also named Eugene. But I think that um, his dad must have given them a lot more than just he came here. He used the shovel. He took my car. And I don't know why he took the dad's car. I don't know if they tested his dad's car. Like, I, I don't know why he would use his dad's car if he's bearing a body because that's you're just leaving evidence in your dad's car instead of being able to go, you know, clean out your car and get rid of the evidence yourself. But, and I don't know why he took his dad's car. I think his dad's, his dad had a slightly larger car than he did. And I don't know what kind of car Eugene had, or even if he had a car, maybe he didn't have one, but I have no idea. That's crazy. So how did he get the, his dad said that he saw him put something large in the, in the trunk of the car how did he even get to his dad's house with something large? I don't know. I know. If he's driving his own car, why wouldn't he just continue on? I have the same questions. Like, why Why stop at your dad's at all? And, you know, maybe he didn't have a shovel and he needed to use that shovel. But why transport this large item, whatever that means, into your dad's car instead of just keeping it in your own car and you know, carrying on. I'm sure he had to stop there to get a shovel. He's not going to be seen going out to the local hardware store and buying a shovel the day his girlfriend disappears, but... Yeah, I mean, maybe um, he switched her body from from her car to her dad's, you know, have it in, in, the, in her own car as least amount of time as possible. That's definitely possible, too. I It's so frustrating because... I do have so many questions and there's there's so much information that's really strange and that just really makes you think, but there's so many holes and I'm sure that the detectives at that time have a lot of answers to all of our questions, but I really do want to, they're really hard to get a hold of. One of them is now a private investigator, but they're all really, you know, a lot older now. And so there was another one who I had planned to have a call with. It's a woman. And at the time that I had planned to call with her, she was in the middle of moving. And so we were going to reschedule kind of like us. And I didn't stay on top of it. So um, I wonder if she would remember that stuff, though, because I'm sure she does have information like her recollection of the story would probably have a lot of things that I don't know from my grandma's recollection of the story. 
and you you said that you were working on a documentary about this. Who would be the ideal candidate to interview for your documentary? So I'm not actively working on it. I wanted to do it a few years ago. I would still love to do it, but um, I don't know. Originally, it was Eugene. My whole idea, it's actually really funny because in the beginning, it was November 2016 that I decided that's when I talked to my grandma that's when so I guess that was four years ago that's uh, maybe I was 22 that's when I talked to my grandma that's when I got all of the newspaper clippings that's when I started reaching out to the detectives and then a month later he died and I didn't know it so it was just really weird timing but since at that time I thought he was alive I was like I'm gonna talk to this guy and I'm gonna get it out of him you know but and I was really excited to be able to do that. And I was also a little scared, but then he's dead. So, I mean, again, I would love to be able to talk to his family because I really think that they hold a lot of information that they're just keeping inside. Yeah. I mean, I would say keep calling those old detectives too. get on them like they're not going to be too proactive, probably about uh, calling you back until you really get a relationship going. But that's possible. Yeah, one of them I've one of them I cannot find his email and I found him on Facebook and I've sent him like three Facebook messages over the last few years. And oh, Bill Kalstrom, that's his name. He was the one who interviewed Eugene in 2012. I've been trying to talk to him. And then um that woman that I told you, I forget her name. I have it in my emails, but she I could talk to because she was really nice and really helpful. I think I just need to be the one to be proactive about it. And then the other one who is a private investigator now, I've emailed him so many times. I've called him and I just never get a response. So he was the one who told me that this case still haunts him and he was so nice. And he even told me that when Carol went missing, he had a really good relationship with my grandparents because, you know, they were working very closely together. And I guess my grandma had given him this book of Carol's that was her favorite book and my grandma gave it to him and he said that he still has it. So um, I would love to talk to him for sure on the phone. That would be really nice. There hasn't been any sightings or anything, any anything um, of, of your aunt that has come up, any clothing or anything at all? Nothing at all. But that that's a good point, too, because apparently a good percentage of her clothes were gone. So where did those go? Did he burn them? Did he bury them with her? I mean, I don't know what you do with all that stuff and for it to never come up or at least for it to not come up and people know that it's hers, you know, because normal people just looks like clothes. But I don't know. Yeah, you're probably right. He probably buried them with her for, you know, but he definitely wasn't thinking it all the way through. Well, I think that he he probably took her clothes in hopes that people would think that she ran away, which is stupid because her car was at my grandparents' house with the keys in the ignition, which is weird. And then, you know, her bank account was never touched. She didn't show up to work. You know, if you just disappear on your own free will, you'd need money. And she was really close with my grandparents. They were like her best friends. And she would have never just gone away without telling them. And they were the one who were encur- who were encouraging her to like, go stay at a friend's, go stay at grandma's. And she wouldn't have just left forever and not told them, especially with this whole investigation unwinding. Like, she would just never do that. 
Do you think that something happened to her uh, and, and he had time to dispose of the body before he contacted her parents? Oh, yeah, because so there was three days because, okay, so I think, and this is what my grandma thinks too, is that when they sent the letter back to Carol saying, we're going to come home on this day, you know, we're going to get you out of the situation kind of thing, that he saw that and he knew that they were coming home He knew and he knew when. So they were in their RV, so they had to drive back, but they didn't get to Florida again until three years, or sorry, not three years, three days after Carol was last seen when she was seen by the witness fighting with Eugene in the car. So that was a whole three days for him to kind of sort everything out before they came home and knew that she wasn't there. So he could have left that note any time within those three days, and he didn't report her missing himself. And that's three days and your girlfriend who lives with you isn't showing up to work and she isn't contacting you and she's not home. Why didn't he report her missing? Probably because he killed her and he didn't. You know what I mean? What was the what was the age difference between them? She was just turned 20 and he was 24. So not not that big. Of no, a not, difference. not not that bad. And what did he do at the restaurant? Was he a cook? You said he was a cook. Yeah. So she he had been working there already. He actually got fired two weeks before she went missing. So he went to go when they were fighting at the restaurant. um, I think it was, he was picking her up from work and she didn't want to come with him and she just didn't want anything to do with him. And so they got in this huge blowout fight, but he did get fired and I don't know why, but I know that he did. Interesting. So I just want to clarify again, the, the part where they were on, she was on her way to the, her work shift the day she was disappeared when she, when she was spotted fighting with him or arguing in her car? It seems that way because I don't know for sure if she had a scheduled shift that day. I just know that she missed her shift. I don't know if it was Saturday or if it was Sunday that she missed her shift, but I would assume it was that day if she was saying, please take me to work. So um, again, if if this witness sighting is true, which I'm kind of inclined to believe it probably is, but yeah, it, it was probably that night that she didn't show up to work. If anybody hears this and they have some information on it, where do you ask them to uh, give that information? Should they contact you or should they contact law enforcement? I mean, just because I'm a curious cat, I would love to know if somebody has information. But if you do, you should contact the Fort Myers Sheriff's Office. And CC you on that. Yeah, CC me in the email. Yeah. But of course, you know, the most important thing is that the sheriff's office gets the information so that they can actually start working on it. Because like I said, um, I, you know, I'm sure that other detectives since Bill Kallstrom retired have picked up the case files and they're looking through it, but nothing is happening. There's there's, as far as I know, it's not being being worked on. And even when I emailed them uh, asking for any kind of information, she, when she did send me the missing persons report, she titled the, um, the subject was Karen Wilsoncroft. And so it's like to the, I don't think to them, they really know anything or really no offense, but care. So, so yeah, but if you know anything, tell them so they can get to work. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Daphne. Really appreciate the conversation and you sharing this, uh, the story of your, uh, your missing family member. It's tragic. Yeah, thank you guys so much for letting me be able to actually tell the story for the first time in a public space. Because like I said, I've only told 
like a brief little summary about it, but being able to actually tell the story and get it out there is really important, which is, I think, why, you know, I really want to do a documentary or a whole other podcast on it is because I really just want to put it to rest. I want my grandma and my mom to just know that, like, know what happened to her because we, you know, we know that she's dead and we know that Eugene did it, but they want to know they just want to know for sure and then they can move on because it's still really really just on their shoulders all the time whether they're aware of it or not so yeah so I would really just love to just get the story out there and thank you guys for helping me do that When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.